and welcome to WISE Brussels Voices. I'm Ilana Beitel. I'm a member of WISE Brussels, that's Women in International Security, and I'm your host for this conversation with people who are helping to advance our organization's goals of empowering women in the fields of peace, security, and defense. In this, our first episode of 2022, we'll be discussing European and transatlantic defense, and of course, the new and tense situation between Russia and Ukraine and its implications for European security. For these and other issues, we're very pleased to have two excellent women with extensive experience in diplomacy and defense. Veronica van Danielsen, head of America's department at the Swedish Foreign Office. Prior to that, she was ambassador of Sweden to France and before that, ambassador and permanent representative to NATO. And with her, we have Muriel Domenac, ambassador and permanent representative of France to NATO. Thank you very much for joining us, both of you. It's a very, very great pleasure to have you. And as ever, we would like to start with each of you introducing yourselves and your career to a certain extent. Veronica. Thank you, Ilana, and thank you for inviting me. I remember with great fondness uh, participating in Weiss Brussels when I was, as you were just saying, ambassador of Sweden as a partner country to NATO. When I came to NATO in 2007, uh, after having spent many years in the EU, uh, both in the European Commission and at the Swedish representation to the EU, uh, when you came to the area of security and defense, you noticed very few women. At some point, we were 50 ambassadors around the countries, partner countries and, you know, kind of the countries in the alliance. And at some point, there were only two women. I was a woman ambassador of Sweden, but I was in good company because the other woman at that point, and then, of course, things have changed since, was the American ambassador, then Victoria Newland who now I see again as head of the Americas, has come back as political director to State Department. I came from EU affairs, even development, corporation affairs, was seen rather as a person engaged in soft issues, democracy, promotion, value, you know, foreign policy, which is value-based, and development, cooperation, trade perhaps, but hardcore security were in many cases earlier years, uh, mainly male colleagues that were engaged in. And then I came to NATO and discovered, first of all, a fascinating environment. Of course, those years, I was particularly a Swedish ambassador focused on the ISAF mission. And shortly, since you asked about my background, yes, many years I have worked with EU affairs in Brussels. I had NATO seven years. And after my NATO experience, which was, as I said, uh, very interesting and quite different from what I had expected, I was appointed Sweden's ambassador to Paris. And I spent basically the past six years in Paris. I had very interesting years in France, in Paris, working on many issues. But again, also on security and defense, which after the terrorist attacks in France, that France suffered heavily and became that contributed to that defense security, the fight against terrorism, all of a sudden also became key topics on the EU agenda, the European agenda, including on my own country, Sweden's agenda. So I would say the security agenda has followed me longer than I had expected, but has given me a strong basis. And now I'm heading the Department for the Americas. So I'm responsible for Sweden's global relations with North America, US, Canada, of course, Central America, Latin America, and the Caribbean. And again, just looking at our closer environment these days, little would I have thought only a few months ago that we could come to a stage where territorial defense issues become a key concern for Europe, for the alliance, and for Sweden as a partner country. Thank you, Ilana. 
Thank you very much, Veronica. That was an excellent expose of your background. <laughs> and now we'll move to Muriel, who I believe also has a very long and distinguished career in both diplomacy and security and defense. Muriel. That's right, Ilana. I too have a security background. I, I've covered security issues most of my career, both external security issues and also internal security issues. I uh, did a lot of NATO and, and, and European defense. I was posted at NATO 20 years ago. I, I headed the uh, strategic affairs department back in, in Paris. I served at the defense ministry. I was appointed as uh, France's uh, consul general to Istanbul in 2013, very much expecting to do, you know, uh, other stuff like influence, like economic business. And uh, also, uh, you know, France has a consistent network of uh, French speaking schools in, in Turkey. I wanted to do outreach and I ended up during uh, that period of time from uh, uh, 2013 to uh, uh, 2016, doing a lot of security uh, uh, actually with the Syrian opposition based in uh, uh, Istanbul and mostly foreign fighters transiting to Syria through Istanbul. So for having covered from the Consulate General in Istanbul, departures and returns of uh, French foreign fighters to and from Syria. So for having covered those issues uh, for three years, I was appointed uh, afterwards in a somehow unusual uh, position for a diplomat. I was appointed head of the uh, interagency task force in Paris on the prevention of uh, radicalization until 2019. And I've been back in a, a diplomatic mission since 2019 here at NATO as NATO ambassador. So like Veronica, mostly security issues, both external and internal security uh, issue, despite my attempt to uh, actually do software business. <laughs> Can I ask you both, because I think this may not be something that most people ever talk about, but what do you both find interesting about security and defense? Veronica? I think it's just part of the reality of diplomacy. You, of course, have first and foremost the diplomatic tool, the political tool, the dialogue, trying to find solutions to problems, trying to find agreements, trying to influence other you know, persons, colleagues, diplomats, countries' behavior through dialogue, through improving their understanding. But then at some point, certain countries, when the limits of the dialogue becomes clear, a country is taken or a union, take, thinking about the EU as well, is taken more seriously if it also has the access to hardcore instruments as well. And I think understanding that part, if you start as a diplomat, I think you have to get a training. I was perhaps naive when I was younger and thought I could devote my life to development cooperation issues. I could be posted to Africa. I've spent, I'm actually the second generation diplomat. My father was a diplomat already. And I had, until I was 16, I lived in West Africa and thought I could um, offer this life and Africa, the content of Africa as postings also to my own family, my own children. But then things happen in life and it doesn't really turn out as you thought it would. 
but does not mean that it didn't turn out uh, as good, but different. And if you have knowledge about, let's say, the soft instruments, uh, the political dialogue, I think it's essential that you understand the importance of trade, economic cooperation, and the importance of security and defense, uh, to understand how countries, how the system, how organizations work, uh, what influences countries, etc., how society works. So I think, yes, it is important to have that experience and not also to sometimes uh, prematurely think that this is more an issue for men. They have, in many cases, in sort of the old-fashioned thinking, men have done their, you know, their military service. Uh, they will understand that world better. I think, on the contrary, today I must actually even add: well, if I, with the knowledge I then acquired uh, during my years at NATO, traveling, visiting, visiting Swedish troops, international troops, be it in Kosovo, uh, be it in Afghanistan, uh, I then, but then I was close to fifty, thought. I would quite have liked to do the military service had I known and not had those prejudices myself imposed on me. And I come from a family with four girls. So it was far away for me, the sort of the military world. And then I also just as a last point noted that I quite like working with military. Uh, Ilana maybe understands some of that uh, interest, uh, even living with the military. I liked the structure, the structured way of functioning in a military world. And that suited my character as well. So, yes, it's a positive experience. Yes, I find the military relatively easy to understand, but that's due to background in my academic field. But also I think there is a clarity sometimes that's missing in civilian military or civil military relations, that the civil side is always more convoluted and the military side, they're quite clear, this is their chain of command, this is what they do do, this is what they don't do. Lillian, how do you feel about defence and security? I guess there's three things with my generation of French women that brought me to security issues. One is Europe, one is terrorism, one is the traditional French thinking that defense matters. And if you want to be heard on the international scene, then you have to be strong on defense. So those three things, you know, uh, being from obviously post-war <laughs> generation, but also that that became conscious politically after the Balkan wars that had come as a trauma to uh, many of us, you know, that we were unable to peter out fires in our own gardens. So that's one. Two, that yes, the Americans are our strongest allies and uh, we have no better allies. Yet, we have to take responsibility on uh, our own security uh, issues. And the dividing line is less of whether we should act with or without the Americans, but rather uh, should we take further uh, responsibilities over our security uh, issues. And last, I have to say that I belong to that generation that had to actually explain to their young children, yes, there's people that actually kill people from their own country and they are ours, you know, they were French, no doubt about this, their home ground. And yes, that might happen again. So echoing very much, you know, Veronica, who was the uh, Swedish ambassador to, to France and considering also what happened to other European countries, France being just ahead of the curve in that respect and to the UK and, and to the US and other countries. Yes, it happens that if you want to uh, make a difference on the international scene and also for your security uh, domestically, you have to fight the fight on all grounds, including on security grounds, because it's not 
like you're going to be spared attacks on your territory or intimidation or pressure, be they uh, internal or external. So because the job has to be done, I guess I was sort of uh, attracted to uh, go for it. And probably the notion that there were so few women... It's not that it attracted me, but uh, okay, if it's a challenge, then, you know, let's take the challenge. I should point out that we were talking, of course, or you were referring, of course, also to the terrorist attack in uh, Paris in 2015 and 2016. And that that's undoubtedly been a major event in Europe that due to all the events, I think, that have happened over the past few years, somehow the speed of events that these things sink, could you suddenly realize, oh, my God, that was the major event that we were all talking about. I I tend to find defence and security very interesting because it also um, embodies everything that you both said. And at the same time, it's intellectually challenging. How do you manage to deal with both the military side of things and with the diplomatic side of things and with the political side of things? And at the same time, have a general public, especially in Europe now, that doesn't really understand why military forces exist or what we should be doing with them. I think that that leads to another question, which is, given we're recording at the very beginning of February 2022, given the situation that we're all facing in Ukraine uh, with Russia, how does that fit in with what you both think about defence and security? How does it make you feel that you suddenly have to face a very tangible situation in which both Europe and NATO are trying to find their feet and you both have so much experience in it? Maybe Muriel, if you want to start this time. Right. So yes, this is NATO coming back to its core business, which feels good in a way, you know, that uh, this alliance that uh, has been doing a lot of, um, how would I put that? And I help you with soul searching. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't dare go that far as challenging the either soul or cognitive issues that the alliance has been uh, facing recently. But I would say... At least this alliance is coming back to its core business with uh, Euro-Atlantic security, the defense of its members, uh, and solidarity with uh, those uh, on the eastern flank that are the most uh, exposed to uh, Russia's strategic intimidation, understood as below the threshold of war, but above uh, definitely the threshold of peace. And uh, uh, I think we're, we've been doing quite well at uh, getting you know, allies together. And the Americans have been doing quite well at, you know, reaching out to uh, partners, uh, both EU partners and NATO partners, because personalities count. uh, I have to say that, you know, that we have a new U.S. ambassador to NATO, uh, Julie Smith, that just, you know, joined uh, earlier this month. Has helped. I mean, I think she strikes the right balance between uh, consultation and and leadership. And this organization is also about U.S. leadership and consultation and coordination with uh, allies uh, also across the uh, Euro-Atlantic uh, area with the European Union, not in obviously uh, a, a competing sort of a, a whatever situation, but uh, rather in complementarity. I think we've been doing quite well uh, so far. We'll see what uh, uh, comes next. The the dialogue track has been managed quite well, keeping space for dialogue if uh, uh, Russia is prepared to do that and and showing unity and robustness at the same time. So we'll see, but core business for NATO is uh, what we're experiencing right now. And uh, I have to say on a a personal note, authority also amongst NATO ambassadors uh, also feels good, you know. (laughs) 
<laughs> that we can openly say, look, uh, I have to put my children to bed now. I will call back in uh, approximately 15 minutes. Feels good. And that's also some dimension to the job, you know, amongst colleagues. I'm speaking under Veronica's control. Yes, I should point out, of course, Muriel, that you, of course, have children of school age. Uh, Julie Smith has children of a school age. And doesn't one wish occasionally that um, some male ambassadors would say, sorry, I'll call you back in 15 minutes because I'm putting my kids to bed. But at least, as you say, we've come to the place in which it's possible to say it and you aren't seen as somebody who's completely lunatic. Veronica, how does the question play out for you vis-a-vis NATO, EU, Russia, Ukraine? First to say, first to Muriel, just commenting on how you ended your excellent sort of summary of the situation and your core question, actually, women working in defense and security. This is exactly why one needs more women in the sector, because you can have those more nerdy men who will work 24-7 and actually, in many cases, take decisions that will not necessarily be the right decisions because they are too far away from sort of reality and not want to be provocative. But even in a, in a complex and, and crisis situation as we're experiencing now and NATO not the least with the core responsibility they have, I think it was very good to hear Muriel saying that it can be the human part is there and it's understood. And the organization, I would argue, will be even more effective and probably come to better decisions when those are the kind of personalities that are taking those decisions. So thank you, Muriel, both for what you're doing uh, as France ambassador to NATO, but also that you still remain (laughs) a mother and a woman in that context as well. I would at this point, I mean, all those listening and showing an interest for defense and security will already be quite well aware of what's going on. So I will not add to what everybody already knows and even the latest developments, and they are still at this moment very critical. But now if I take, well, both personal, uh, because I really mean it myself as well, but perhaps also as a Swedish representative, as a partner country and a key partner country to NATO, we have been incredibly grateful for the outreach, for the information sharing we had from individual countries, including France, but also NATO as an organization. My foreign minister with a Finnish colleague, was a week ago received by uh, Secretary General Stoltenberg to get an update, but also not only an update on what's going on or intelligence sharing, which we also are grateful for, and we can share our information, our intelligence, but also to express our concerns and having an organization like NATO listening to partners. What are the consequences for you looking at, the, for instance, the quite unacceptable demands that Russia is putting forward and coming with a very concrete example of how their demands would negatively affect our security and our security cooperation with key countries, key partners, not the least in our neighborhood, but also with the U.S. So, yes, thank you to NATO, uh, U.S. representative, and thank you to the U.S. as well on a bilateral level. And as regard the core, as I said, perhaps initially, to sit here in 2022, the last day of January, And that we, it might be the core task of NATO, and they for a time seemed to have forgotten because they were so much into crisis management operations the past 25 years. I mean, after I-4 and S-4 and and K-4, et cetera, and ESAF, it was crisis management operations further away. And now you're going back to the core needs, core role of NATO, and uh, they are getting their act together. Of course, we're following it now. We're not sitting at the table. Unfortunately, I can say at my own personal level, but that's not the Swedish position. But it is still, and that perhaps led to a country like Sweden, 
having basically passed 15 years, 20 years, we did not have a strong national defense because we did not think that a unified Europe after the fall of the war would have to have these kind of situations. We've been confronted with them. So it's been partly a wake-up call. And some would, of course, today argue this wake-up call came already 2008 when the war between Georgia and Russia took place. And then it was a wake-up call with Crimea, definitely. But that it could take the extent we're seeing now, I think we were not prepared for that. And if you want to, the positive effect is that all countries, not the least my own country, is investing, reinvesting heavily in our national defense. So if we, for the past 10 years, had also organized ourselves to be able to have troops that could go abroad, we've had both systems. We were looking towards developing a voluntary army so we could send soldiers at their own will further away. Now we're going back to where we were in the 50s, 60s again. But I think it's unfortunate that we have to confront these kind of challenges. And it would have been, there is so much we could do and work with Russia uh, as a strong neighbor to ourselves, but to Europe on so many issues that would be so much more important also for Russia to deal with on the environment, even on fighting terrorism. We have many interests we share with them, but they would have to look at aggressively attacking a neighbor country. I did not think that that would belong to this period of our time anymore. There is a large element, is there not, um, turning back the clock as though Russia is trying to somehow go back to 20 years ago, 30 years ago, in fact, not just in spheres of influence, but also to an era in which the EU was not much more than the European economic community and it ended in West Germany and dealt only in trade and commerce. There is some, to my mind, disturbing and, and slightly surreal that the same countries that are member states of NATO are also members of the EU, but the EU, instigated by Russia, um, is just not part of this equation. It's NATO and the US, but actually, if you talk about European security, you have to talk about the EU. Undoubtedly, France is also a leader in these issues. And undoubtedly, Veronica, you've had to deal with this duality as ambassador and also at NATO. And really, you have to deal with it now. So how does it all square? Because as I say, I can't see a world in which you can talk about European security without talking about the European Union. Um, maybe, Muriel. So let me try in my personal capacity sort of a, a gender reading of also Putin's approach to the EU and to uh, the rest of us in the West. And I take it very much from uh, my friend Elif Shafak, you know, the Turkish novelist that uh, now lives in London and who had this remark on a number of our populist leaders, some of which belong to uh, big NATO countries, that, you know, there's something to their sort of macho uh, attitude that they share, you know, the disdain and contempt for those uh, somehow, you know, feminine powers. And they, they would definitely see the EU as some sort of feminine, weak, not respectable interlocutor, some sort of, um, you know, weak, uh, uh, hollow, something a little bit dangerous at the same time. Uh, I mean, that really goes with some sort of a, uh, imagination. And it's been striking me how much, you know, the organization that the Russians hate the most. And sometimes I have to say, I hear some of the same tough words, you know, at the EU also from the in this organization, but clearly, I mean, the Russians are far more 
uh, vocal on their hatred for the EU as uh, exemplifying everything they, they hate, you know, with the sense of a decline of a, a white man, rights for women, rights for LGBT, freedoms, freedom of the press, everything they hate. Uh, so it's been Putin's constant point to keep the EU aside of the uh, conversation, which is why I think we shouldn't play in his hand, uh, letting the EU aside, also because it leaves, you know, uh, European allies, of course, with their voice at NATO, and we make it count. And of course, it's France's uh, constant view that Europeans should speak up at NATO. But, you know, when we speak of uh, deterring Putin from uh, attacking Ukraine. It's a lot about uh, sanctions, but it's a lot about also how do we uh, arrange the dialogue with the Russians when it comes to uh, uh, our own uh, security. You know, there's uh, the risk reduction, uh, arms control. All of those issues have to be discussed at NATO, of course, but also in an EU context with uh, also EU partners that are close partners of, uh, of NATO, but that are not NATO members like Sweden. So uh, my sort of gender reading of uh, this macho uh, type of foreign policy brings me to uh, a strong plea for equal representation EU-NATO in our discussions with the Russians, with the understanding that we share far more unity amongst EU uh, partners and and NATO allies than the differences that uh, some commentators would like to uh, point out. Uh, so I think it takes a little bit of, a, uh, you know, all voices from uh, the West to uh, actually challenge uh, Putin's uh, intimidation. Excellent. What do you think, Veronica? This conflict is a conflict nobody of us has asked for. It's one country, which is very clearly the aggressor, and which in its behavior, both threatening with this enormous military buildup along the frontiers of the Ukraine is threatening uh, with an invasion, if we talk, you know, clear text. And they, in their outreach, giving, you know, these little bit of hope that there might be a possible path for dialogue, has addressed that dialogue to NATO very clearly and to the U.S. So even from Swedish's perspective, it's understandable that those will be the two parties, if you want to, that will try to now manage And the U.S. plays an important role, a leading role in NATO, as Muriel was saying. And they have the bilateral issues that are already on a common agenda, but which the Russian withdrew from. So I, I'm not, we're not surprised that these are the main actors now trying to see whether they can positively influence a change of behavior. But I think in this particular situation, looking at Europe, looking at what's going on around the Ukraine, at this, at giving the impression of preparing for a major invasion, at least they now are up to the numbers that could, if the will is there, take, you know, go a bridge too far. It is in our understanding uh, NATO that has the role and responsibility for the territorial defense of the alliance. And most, our country is not, but most EU members are members of NATO. So, I mean, the coordination indirectly, I mean, You talk to yourself when you sit as a French ambassador uh, in the alliance and you have, you know, the, the other part of your country or the other instruments are discussed in the EU. The EU does not have the hardcore security responsibility and potential today. So I think it's perhaps understandable, uh, even from our country not being a member of NATO, that the main discussion will take place. And that's where actually, and for all the reasons also Muriel said, that is the organization that Russia takes serious. Uh, and that's why they have dressed themselves to to NATO and they want to be taken even more serious by the Americans. Individual countries, major countries like France, have a bilateral dialogue with Russia. But in many cases, the smaller countries of the Union are not taken uh, much serious. 
and then that is perhaps the, the weak arm of the EU, is that so far I think it's been fantastic to see how united we have been. The EU has been, the alliance has been, and the transatlantic unity uh, is key in this time. But there are, of course, challenges, and we are very worried. Uh, for us now, the unity is one of the key objectives in every effort we will be undertaking these days and supporting Ukraine as much as possible. But that unity in the EU and transatlantic has to be maintained, because that, I think, is the biggest threat we are posing. That's exactly what Putin is trying to achieve, to weaken the alliance, to weaken uh, the EU, to weaken the, the unity in the EU. And at some point, when we talk sanctions, which is another subject that is being discussed these days in most capitals uh, and in the commission from the EU side and not the least uh, the US, if they have to be put forward, if they will be triggered, and that will be in the hands of, of Russia, and they will be massive. Uh, we are preparing and we're ready to take the cost for far-reaching sanctions on Sweden's side. But of course, the worry is that the unity might not be maintained over time because different countries have different relations and different dependencies, and they will, of course, be affected economically. But so far, we are very pleased to see that this unity has been maintained, and uh, we hope that that will continue in the, for the foreseeable future until we have a detente sufficiently to see that one starts taking back troops and that we can focus solely on the two diplomatic channels. One will be through the NATO and the other is the bilateral. Short, just quick, we are, of course, at EU has and will have a relation to Russia, even as a union, of course. My hope, our hope, is that we do not have to trigger any sanctions and that the discussions that they have asked for will continue on those two levels that they have identified themselves. And at some point when we start, hopefully, normalizing, then, of course, you will also have Russia discussion in the union. So the sanctions is now the preparatory part, but I hope we will not have to get there because that would imply that things have turned badly. Thank you, Veronica, though I think in your very first, you pointed out precisely what I was trying to suggest, which is that that is following the Russian narrative. You yourself said it would be bilateral and NATO, and yet at the end of the day, or even at the beginning of the day, sanctions are being discussed at the EU, not at NATO, because NATO doesn't have the instruments of sanctions. So for me, and looking ahead, this is a trilateral, this isn't a bilateral, really. And we have to be the ones pushing it, to my mind, in order to make it part of our narrative, as opposed to just following the Russian lead that I will only talk to NATO and the US. We're running out of time. So looking ahead, because that's really what we're looking at in where you wonderfully ended your answer. No, no, indeed, I was merely pointing out that since sanctions is the only instrument seriously being considered, given that this is not an attack on a NATO country, the discussion on sanctions is being held at the EU and not at NATO, because it's not an instrument that NATO wields. But looking ahead, how do you two both see 2022 panning out? And what are the changes that we will see in European and transatlantic defence and security? Veronica. Uh, the good part, as head of the Americas, is, was not only the election of Joe Biden and the Biden administration and with Secretary of State Blinken, very EU-minded, an excellent French speaker, and very engaged in European security. So I think the for us at least short term, and even now with this crisis and the way the US is trying to handle the crisis, is a strengthened transatlantic tie, which we still, even as a non-NATO country, see as crucial for the stability, for the security, for economic growth. And at the end of the day, which we have not talked about much now, but which is at the core of our foreign policy, upholding our common values. 
that was more difficult the last four years. It is again a possibility. We were very pleased and engaged in the Summit for Democracy that President Biden launched and promoting democracy, not only within the alliance, but also in third countries, regions. As I said, I'm also following and the developments in Central and Latin America are not necessarily going in the right direction. So what we can do together to uphold our system, our values is the most hopeful part I see for this year. But short term, I'm unfortunately quite pessimistic. What do you think, Nguyen? I'm a relative optimist. I thought it could would have turned even worse, you know, already uh, early this year. So, of course, seen from a NATO perspective and also from a French perspective, we're getting prepared for the Madrid uh, summit that uh, will take place on the 29th and 30th of June, uh, the last two days of the French presidency. Obviously, by then, we will have had not only a presidential election in France, but uh, also in March, a European summit and the European Council that we very much expect will be uh, a moment when Europeans, you know, acknowledge that we live no more in peace. Uh, not that we leave at war, and hopefully uh, by then we will have managed to deter any Russian aggression on Ukraine, but uh, it's now for Europeans to uh, step up, defense on defense, get their capabilities ready to be uh, actually committed on the ground and get their sort of thinking ready for you know further commitments. One of the issues we are trying to bring forward as France is really a strategic rearmament, so to speak, un réarmement stratégique. And, and again, it's a lot of theological discussions on with and without the US and we, should we rely on the US and uh, are we going towards you know a situation where the Republican Party is going to win the midterms and we won't be able to count on our US allies anymore. Well, I would suggest that we focus a little bit more on ourselves taking more responsibilities and less on whether we should or can actually count on the on the US. So strong plea for Europeans taking more responsibilities during this semester in 2022 and we'll see for the rest of the year. Well, I think that's an excellent summary of where both NATO and the EU and I suppose European defense and security could and should go. Thank you very much. That's a wrap on this episode of Wise Brussels Voices. Thank you so much to our guests, Veronica van Danielsen and Muriel Dominac. Florence Ferrando is my co-producer and fantastic collaborator. And we'd also like to thank our technical team at Free Range Productions. Please continue the discussion with us at Wise Brussels on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. And if you haven't done it yet, subscribe to Wise Brussels Voices and listen to all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast application. Learn more about Wise Brussels on our website, wise-brussels.org. I'm Ilana Beitel. Thanks for joining us and stay tuned for more great conversations.